0: Be turning to the little book of First John, and we'll be in chapter two. Give me just a moment to get there myself. Here in uh, as you get older, it's funny how bifocals and stuff like that mess with you yeah, going up and down ladders has been a new experience too. once I had to go to bifocals. You're looking down through the bottom part, but your feet are just far enough away that the bifocals really don't help much. Um, but um, like I said, we're going to be in First uh, John uh, chapter two, looking at verses three through eleven. Um, the title of the lesson tonight will be Privileges and Responsibilities. And uh, we'll go on and read the verses, and then we'll talk about them. Again, uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word... In him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye had heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you. Which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light is now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. And walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that the darkness hath blinded his eyes. We see here in the lesson tonight the same topic, really, that our Lord Jesus talked about briefly in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, where he talks about that with privilege comes responsibilities and that they go hand in hand. And we see in uh, these verses the exact same thing that John is rehearsing again. You, uh, In the beginning of the book that we've been studying over the last few weeks, John has been pointing out and speaking about the provisions that God has made for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have a way to have our sins paid for, both for salvation, and that puts us in a relationship with our Heavenly Father, As his children, he's our father, and nothing's going to break that bond. If we've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, we're as saved as we'll ever be. But the thing is, then comes the deal of having fellowship with the Father. And that comes from keeping our accounts with the Lord settled as far as the sins that we allow ourselves into our lives, the things we mess up with, and it's so easy to do. Um, You know, like I've used the analogy before, the guy that pulls out and almost hits you and your family in the car, your thought life toward that individual there for a few seconds just may not be exactly like it ought to be. Uh, you might even remember some language that you thought you had forgotten. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, we've talked about the fact that there's a difference between tripping and falling into sin and laying down in sin. As far as we all, we've used the analogy before, we've all tripped and fell before as adults. And the first thing we do is jump back up if we're able. And then the next thing we do is look around to see if anyone saw us because we're embarrassed. And that's the same thing when we trip and we fall into sin. We're ashamed of ourselves. We know that as God's kids we ought not be that way. And so we go to our Heavenly Father And we ask forgiveness. And long as we go to him and sincerely repent. That we're truly sorry that we did it. Not that we got caught. But that we did it. God the Father says that because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He forgives us of our sins. And so that's how the fellowship stays in place. The relationship is based on an understanding. Of what Christ did for you on the cross. And you accepting it. Every person. That is going to heaven. Or believes that they're going to heaven. Believes that there is a reason why God will let them in. And the key to knowing if you have true salvation. Is you taking the time to go down your mind's road. And understand what is it I'm really depending on. What is my confidence in? Is it my church attendance? Well then Christ didn't need to die. If it's your baptism, Christ didn't need to die. If it's taking communion, then Christ didn't need to die. If it's your good works, well, the Bible already tells you there is filthy rags. So what is it you're depending on? What's your confidence in? And everybody's got something. If they really think they're going to heaven, they think there's a reason. This is why God's going to let me in. And the truth of the matter is, if your confidence is in anything other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your confidence is misplaced. And the Bible says you're deceived. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, although you're in a bad situation. And if you don't come to the understanding that it's Christ and Christ only that makes the difference on having that relationship, having your sins forgiven, your sins washed away, and you become a child of God. But then John is talking to us about our relationship, not our relationship, but our fellowship. Um... In these verses here, after he's been talking about the provisions that Christ, God has made for us through his son, Jesus Christ, now he goes to our responsibilities is what he's talking about in these verses that we have. In verses 3 through 5, we see the believer's assurance. And the key word in this book, as I've described once before, is the little word know. Not the, the word like God wants you to know something. This little book of five chapters, God uses that word 38 different times. In fact, it's been written about this little book, again, that it's called the book of assurances and the book of certainties. God wants you to know something. He doesn't want you to be unconvinced. There's two sides to the coin. One is if you're lost, he doesn't want you to believe you're saved until you come to the true saving knowledge of Christ. But he also doesn't want you to worry about your salvation if you trust it, Christ, because there will be evidences of it. And that's what he draws throughout this little book is contrast. If you got these things in your life, you've got Christ in your life. If you don't have these things in your life, you need to do some examination and make sure that you're truly saved. And in uh, this particular passage, in the first three verses that we're looking at, verses 3 through 5 here, that little word know is used four different times. Do you think God wants you to know something? Yeah, he wants you to know something. He wants you to know if you're saved or not and to, to, to know it for a fact. Because many people claim to be saved, and some of them even mistakenly believe they're saved, but they're not. And so it's it's real critical to cut to the chase because the last person you want to deceive is yourself. I mean, that is really doing yourself a misservice service if you allow yourself to be deceived. And the, um, the thing that John uses here in these um, verses, in three times... Uh, in these verses, in verses uh, 4, 6, and 9 of the total passage, he uses the word, he that saith. other words, he's taking your own words, and people are making the comment, well, I'm saved. And this is why I think I'm saved. And, God, and what uh, John is going to point out in these verses as we go through them is that If you're truly saved, there's going to be some evidence of it. My brother and sister-in-law just got saved earlier this year. And they're 50 years old, uh, in their 50s. And the thing is, they both thought they were saved. And if you talk to them about it, they didn't go to church much, which always made me worry. But when you talk to them about it, they would say, yes, I'm saved. But then if you started talking about spiritual things, things that should be kind of exciting to a Christian, they just kind of got this faraway look in their eye because it really didn't hit home. But what they had was, and my sister-in-law articulated it the most, was that she had gone to a lot of church camps. She was an inner-city child up in Dallas, and they would have a lot of church camps and stuff at different churches, would gather everyone up, take them off to church camp. And she had a lot of religious experiences. She had gone to these different camps, and she liked the fellowship. She liked the different things. And every time she, someone would ask her the question, are you saved? She would relate it back to these experiences that she had had. Well, yeah, I went to camp, and I did this, and I did that. And, and, she, and in, her, in her mind, I have to be saved. But then luckily they started going to a church and the preacher was preaching about the book of Revelations and going into great detail about things. And uh, little by little they started asking themselves questions about their lack of understanding and the things that they didn't have in their life. Anyway, they came to the saving knowledge of Christ earlier this year. And I'm thankful for that. But it helps us to take the time and to prove and to provoke thought about what is our profession based on. We believe we're saved. Why? And where is the evidence that proves it? Because there will be evidence to prove it. We see in... um, We'll go through some other verses here, but in verses 3 through 5, and we'll read them again, and then we'll talk about them. And hereby we do know that we know him. In other words, that you're really saved. If we keep his commandments, well, that ought to be easy enough to do some checklist. There's a lot of things God would like us to be busy doing, and there's a lot of things God says to not do. And if we can, before I got saved, I thought I was saved when I was younger, and I didn't get saved till I was 18. And the thing is, I knew how to talk when I was around church people. And I could leave that church building, drive 15 minutes away to some friend's house, and tell them the best, dirtiest story I'd ever heard in my life. And I felt no conflict. Because I did not have God the Holy Spirit in my heart to tell me there was a conflict. I just knew that it was polite to talk this way around this group and this other group. They didn't care. And I felt no conflict. Boy, once I got saved, that changed. Once I got saved, that mouth needed to clean up. It, it, it wasn't just an embarrassment. It was a sin. It, was, it wasn't it was the way Christian ought to behave. And so the Bible's teaching us here in these verses, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, John is like about a late 70s to early 80-year-old preacher. This is being preached somewhere, you know, about uh, 60 years after the death of Christ. And, you know, he's old enough that he just don't feel like he has to pull his punches. I mean, you know, in our society today, you just, you know, you've got to be politically correct, right? John says, if you, if you say you got this, but you're acting this way, guess what? You're a liar. You know, now God, the Holy Spirit, but the thing is, he also says, my little children throughout this book. So is this not a man that cares? You know, he does care and God cares. But the thing is, he doesn't want anyone to be in doubt about this. You may wonder why I'm going on and on about this. How many of you play it so nice and easy around your family members that you're really worried that they're not saved, but you're afraid you're going to offend them? You know, the thing is, we're not doing them any favors. we got to be tactful. we got to be loving. we got to be prayerful. But by not bringing up the subject and say, well, I'm just not going to go there right now. I'm going to just pray for them only. That's not what God's busy doing in his word, is he? So we need to realize that we have a burden, we have a, should have a burden, and we have a responsibility. But it says, but whosoever keepeth his word in him verily is the love of god perfected hereby know we that we are in him basically in verses 3 through 5 god is saying that obedience is an evidence of salvation now the thing is you know our cond- my you know my uh, vocabulary as limited as it is it, it's my it's my it's my, my philosophy. What I say and stuff like that is my philosophy. But what I do is my faith. Would you agree with me? Now the two ought to be the same. What I say and what I do ought to be the same. But which one speaks louder? What you do, what you do. because it's the real you, isn't it? And, and so uh, what we realize is is that. Our conduct reveals our character. And the thing is, when I was lost, I could go to church and try to be nice and polite, because I really enjoyed those people. But then I could go with my other friends and just tell the filthiest stories. But there was no conflict. There was nothing in me, in my character. And what made me have the ability to overcome that? God the Holy Spirit in my heart. To lead me, to direct me, to encourage me. And the new nature that comes with salvation. I finally had a Heavenly Father I wanted to please. And I knew that there was certain conduct that I should have in my life. Now we're, you know, we're not saved by works. But salvation will change your conduct. The the day I got saved was when the preacher preached. You don't have to remember the day, the week the month, or even the year you got saved. But you do need to remember a time your life took on a change. And that's when Satan lost his argument with me, and I realized that whatever profession I had made, it hadn't changed me. So it had no substance. It wasn't real. And um, so salvation will change us. Verse 6, we'll read it. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. You know, when Jesus came in the flesh, he didn't come just to pay for our sins. He didn't come just to have a body that could physically be tempted in all ways yet without sin and then be the perfect sacrifice, take our place on the cross of Calvary and be our substitute. Now, he that was his main mission, but that wasn't the only thing he did. By coming in the flesh and walking among us in the flesh, he showed man how he ought to be. And because of that, he's our example. And we should try to imitate him. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. You know, I've had uh, Church of Christ friends that I used to work with and they were all into works. If you know the doctrine of Church of Christ, they believe that okay, yeah, you got to kind of, sort of accept Jesus, and but you really got to be baptized, and you got to join a Church of Christ church. Which, if you go to the book of First Corinthians, it says that it was written to the Church of God at Corinth, and not to the Church of Christ at Corinth, but to the Church of God at Corinth. And they don't really like reading that. Uh, but anyway, they're real big on their works. And I tell him, I said, you may be working to get saved, but I work because I am saved. And then I ask him, which one gives Christ more glory? You trying to earn something or me trying to say thank you? And and so uh, the thing is, he tells us in this verse, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Now, some would say John's asking too much. No one can do what he did. And he's right in some regards. But Martin Luther answered that about this passage when he said, It is not Christ walking on the sea, but his ordinary walk that we are called on here to imitate. We're called on to imitate the way Christ loved people, the way Christ was long-suffering with people, the way the Lord did. Tried to care for the needs of people. It was his ordinary walk that we're called to imitate. As John tells us that we should be busy doing in verse 6. You know, the thing is, we know that all believers can walk as Christ did in an ordinary walk. You know why I know all believers can? Can. Because John tells us in verse 6 we're supposed to do it. If God commands us to do it, then we've got to be able to do it. Would you agree with me? You know, God wouldn't give us a command that we couldn't do. Now, the fact is, he's already covered in the previous chapter that none of us are going to do it perfectly, right? But then because of that, we can come to the Father and confess our sins, and because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, he'll clean us all up. The um, there was a, I'm trying to find my note here. A man named Guy King wrote. He's a writer, and he wrote the word the word ought. He says, "Has often been a great comfort to me." This is him writing because ought spells can. Other words, if he tells us here in verse six, he said, "He that saith he abideth in Him ought." himself also so to walk even as he walked and so the thing is he's basically saying since god tells me i ought to do it i know that i can do it or he wouldn't be telling me that i had to do it it also spells in a roundabout way that we should do it and the reason we should do it is because he's our lord not just our example but he's our lord and he's commanded us to do it we The Greek word translated ought means to owe, to be in debt for, to be under obligation, bound by duty or necessity to do something. And so the Lord's telling us, because you've accepted me as Savior, because I went to the cross for you, and I have paid your sin debt and redeemed your soul, you ought to walk as I walk. And to treat people and behave yourself as I treated people and behaved before them. And so because of that, we have no right to live as we please unless we please to live right. And it's a sign of our, do we truly have salvation? The thing is, if what I'm saying to you right now, if in the back of your mind you don't know that I'm telling you the truth, you need to wonder, are you really saved? Because if you're a child of God, you know this is going to ring true. It's going to ring true that we know we ought to do it. In verse 7 through 11, it talks about the believer's affections, and we'll read these verses. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning, which ye had from the beginning, The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother and abideth in the light, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. John's been talking about our commandments, and he's been doing it in the plural. Well, now he's going to distill it all down to basically one word, and that one word is love. And he t- the the... Um, Verses here, at first glance, verses 7 and 8, seem to have a contradiction. Because in verse 7, he says, I'm not going to tell you any new commandment. But then in verse 8, he says, I am giving you a new commandment. And so some people see that as a contradiction. The thing is, they're both true. What John is telling them is that he's not telling them anything that they haven't heard before. But what he's doing is he's drawing a conclusion about it. And the, and the thing is, the thing that they had heard before, they had heard from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Excuse me as I turn the page here. But in John chapter 13 and in verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. You know, although we've always been obligated, Christians and the Old Testament saints have always been obligated to love one another. There is a new understanding of what that love encompasses in the New Testament compared to the Old Testament. And um, one man, uh, a man named A.W. Pink, he wrote it this way: Love had now been manifested, yea, personified, as never before. Christ had displayed a love superior to the faults of its objects, a love which never varied, a love which deemed no sacrifice too great. Isn't that what it took for the Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross for us? You know, he knew us for what we really were, and yet he looked past every one of our faults and saw our needs and went to the cross for us because he loved us and because the Father loved us. That's, you know, when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ and you think about God the Father and you think about the sacrifice that they made for us, there has to come a realization God is for you, not against you. God, God loves you. God is rooting for you. God wants to encourage you. God wants to be there for you. He wants to have that fellowship with you. He wants to be your friend. Otherwise, he wouldn't have loved you like he did. And he's proved it by going to the cross. And so when we have problems, if we've fallen into sin, if we've drifted from the Lord more than we should, run back to him. It's in your own best interest. Because he loves you and he cares for you and he's proved it. We also see that uh, Jesus told his followers to do likewise uh, in the scriptures. And Paul said that um, love is the fulfilling of the law in Romans 13 and verse 10. Now, in verse 11, we see that he tells us about the person who has hate in his heart, a person who does not have the love that the Lord expects us to have. And another writer, a man named H.E. Dana, who wrote back in 1937, talking about in a commentary about this man that he's talking about, He is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat, which is not there. That's pretty in pretty bad shape, isn't it? Because the scripture tells us here in verse 11, he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whether he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Doesn't that pretty well describe a lot of today's society? They're just stumbling through life with no real direction, no real purpose. Different obstacles come up and they have no clue how to handle them. And that's the reason I think we see so much alcohol, we see so much drugs, we see so many broken families. People just don't have any, uh, any direction in their life. They're just stumbling through life. And the thing is, the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world to provide light, didn't he? And the thing is, the scriptures had told us earlier in this little book that there's no darkness in God. There's no need to hide anything in God. He's perfect. And he showed his love to us. He manifested in the life of Jesus Christ. And the thing is, we can learn from that and we can grow in that. We can accept that. But the thing is, so many of the people in the world today are just stumbling around in darkness. And many of them stumble into church every once in a while and think they're okay. But they need to realize that they don't necessarily have what God wants them to have, and that is a relationship with him. And thus, us that do have a relationship with him, that have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to realize this whole world is always trying to beat us down, isn't it? I mean, the cares of this life, I mean, our church has been racked with a lot of sickness, a lot of different things that have been going on. There is so much trying to pull our eyesight down from Christ and down here on the earth, and then we get consumed with our problems, don't we? And what does that do to our stomach juices? You know, it just creates ulcers, it causes stress, heartaches. We just need to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us enough to go to the cross And then imitate his life, not for salvation or anything else other than the fact that we want to try to please our Heavenly Father knowing that he's promised to never leave us, never to forsake us, and he's given us great and precious promises in his word that we can claim. And when we've done an inventory in our heart, when we're going through a trial or a problem, since God doesn't spank his children without letting them know what it's about, we can quickly do that inventory and realize, is this something I brought on myself, or is this something God's just taking me through, and there's a purpose. Since God loves me, I know there's a purpose. And I know he is good, so his purpose is good. And there is a confidence that comes from that. To scotch your feet, to make your stand, and to weather the storm. And the peace that passes all understanding. When You ought to just be a nervous wreck, and you're not, because you're not standing in your own confidence, but you're standing in the confidence that your God is on his throne. But all that comes from having that right fellowship. And we allow sin sometimes to interfere with that fellowship. And, of course, if we've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't even have the relationship yet. But that can be fixed by coming to an understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross and accepting it. Anybody have any thoughts or comments before we close in a word of prayer?